Romans 6. And it's not going to be your normal... It's, we're going to do something a little different. If you read through, especially the last half of Romans 6, you get this sort of back and forth. Some you, you might catch it and you might not. Um, let me get there. So this morning, what we talked about was the the last half of what we talked about this morning was the, your baptism, showing this being the, an expression of this invisible thing that's happened within you, uh, and that being a Christian, becoming a Christian, being a disciple of Christ, isn't just this like. I've decided to change my lifestyle. But it's a change in who you are. It's a change in every aspect of your being. Your heart, your mind, and your will. You're not who you once were. Now, don't get me wrong here. That doesn't mean that you have this testimony of... um, I once was this... A drug dealer, or I was an alcoholic, and the Lord, the Lord used uh, some preaching, and and He changed my heart. I once was blind, and then on May 27th, 1986, then that day I saw, and I never touched alcohol again. I stopped this sin. I stopped that sin. Those are beautiful testimonies. Those are those are Paul-like testimonies. You know what I mean? Paul like testimonies. Paul's persecuting the church. And then one day Christ confronts him and gives him a new heart, right? Um, that those things those are such great testimonies and such great stories to hear of the work of God. But then you've got someone like Layla. Layla's nine, and the worst thing she ever did was disobey her parents. You know, so she's not going to grow up saying, I was this far deep in sin and the Lord brought me. She just doesn't have that story. And I pray none of my kids have that story. Right? And and that's what raising, that's what raising kids within the faith, I would hope, would look like. Is that while they're not born Christian, they can't remember not being in the faith. That's what I hope my kids grow up to be. So when we say, when we talk about uh, being dead to sin and alive to God, resurrected, united with Christ, it doesn't mean you had to have this Damascus Road salvation experience. It means simply you were dead in your sin, you were a slave to sin, and at some point you weren't anymore. And for Layla, I'm hoping that means she obeys a little bit more. No. But the, the reality is, is that she will never have that crazy testimony, but our hope is that she will always remember being a slave to righteousness, not a slave to sin. Even though the reality is, is that she has been a slave to sin. She has been dead in her sin, but now she has been raised 
with Christ into newness of life. So, like I said, just because we talk about this, this actual internal thing happening, doesn't mean it has to be this life-altering thing. Some people, like I said, just grow up saying, I just always believe. Now, there are some people that say that, and I'm thinking, do you really? But there are some people that I, that the most godliest people I know and I would want to be like, and they they have that reality. I've just always, I can't remember not being a follower of Christ, and that's that's a great thing. Um, if if that wasn't, we can't live and have do ministry thinking we have to only save people out deep of sin. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't tell us to raise our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, right? What would be the point in that? If he's not expecting them to actually be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Anyway, that's a whole nother road to go down. Um, so this change, this thing that's taking place internally, and our baptism reflects that. The being buried with Christ, going underneath the water. And we, one thing I didn't touch on this morning is in Israel, in Hebrew history, there was a, a long history of water cleansing water ritual remember the the pharisees got onto jesus because that his disciples didn't wash their hands enough or well enough before they it was a whole thing and jesus turned when jesus turned water into wine do you, he used um rit, uh cleansing huh purification Pure, uh, uh, ceremonial purification jars that they had ceremonial water in that was for ceremonial cleansing. And if you read through the Old Testament in um, Leviticus, and is it Leviticus that lays out all those all those laws, I, my mind's gone blank. Where if you if you are sick this way or you touch this thing, you must bathe and wash. And so there was all, there's always been in Hebrew history this idea of water cleansing you from your uncleanliness, right? Uh, where was I going with that? Oh, yeah. And so a lot of the writings in the New Testament, you see the apostles talking about being washed, being washed. And I'm kind of going on a, on a side note here, but let's let's look at a couple of them. Um, I know a, there's some in my head. One is Titus. Look at Titus. Oh, yeah, I thought of the other one. So let's look at Titus first because that was the one that first popped into my mind. Titus 3, starting in verse 3. Verses 3 and 4 are kind of the setup. Titus 3, verse 3, for we ourselves, so he's talking to disciples, right? He's talking to the church. For we ourselves were once, there's that, that the idea of, you know, our old self being crucified with Christ, being buried before we once were. We once ourselves were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's our old self that was buried with Christ. Uh, 
after being crucified. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. So there's that, that idea of being cleansed by not just Christ, but also the Spirit of God, right? Being wa- by the washing of re- regeneration. Regeneration is like um, being made new, being made different, um, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom... So here's that I, here's that word, that language of, of water cleansing, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So there we see a washing done to us through God pouring out his spirit upon us through the Son. So in that scenario, you see the Trinity, the Father pouring out, applying the Spirit of God to a believer. And that only happens through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So you can't be cleansed by the Spirit if you do not have faith in the Son. You only get cleansed by the Spirit through not just faith in the Son, but in His righteous life. Right, So all that is, is triune. It's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working together to cleanse us of our unrighteousness, of our, all those things that we want, used, used to once do. And so not only does baptism have that, that down in the grave, up from life, but it does have that symbolic sense of washing, of cleansing. But we know that water only cleans the outside right so there's there's how we that that's one of those things that we know from what we see in scripture and the words that jesus says is that water only cleans the outside it cannot cleanse you of your sin um okay here's another another rabbit trail uh it's matthew Jesus and the Pharisees and the whole cleaning the cup thing. Um, if you think of it, oh here maybe is that when they get on to him about washing their hands? You clean the outside of your cup. Whoever finds it gets bonus points. I guess it's not Matthew. Oh, no, here it is. Here it is. Yeah, Matthew 23. It's after the woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 23. So we kind of have to build on this a little bit. Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you. So Jesus is giving a very sharp warning. 
woe to you. Um, Well, woe in in Hebrew, the way it's tra- I'm probably going to say this wrong, is all is is oive. You know, we don't we say it very lightly. These oive, you know, that's a Jewish term. Like, but it really means when they say it, it really means trouble. Um, anyway, that is just an interesting thought that came to my mind. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside also may be clean. Okay, well in that argument, we can clean the inside of a cup with water, right? But let's keep reading. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. You, how do you get beautiful? You clean yourself, right? But within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also appear, you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Uh and then there is another spot where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. I think it's the instance about the whole washing the hands. And Jesus says it's not a matter of what's going out of the body into, or coming from outside into the body, but that which is coming from the inside out. The only way to get clean on the inside, the spiritual cleanliness, is by spiritual cleansing. The Pharisees were spick and span on the outside by all the washing that they did. The the Pharisees were dead inside because they had not been spiritually cleansed by God on the inside. So the water, all that to say, only cleans the outside. Okay, It only cleans the outside. The water that you get baptized in cannot cleanse your inside. Um, I've ran that point enough. So let's go back to Romans 6. Now, I'll give a little bit of... a little bit of balance here. We who believe that water does not cleanse or that we can even take the other ordinance or sacrament, the Lord's Supper, that the body or that the the bread and the cup don't turn into the actual body and blood of Jesus, we as people who only see those as symbols and signs, we can have a tendency of removing them so far from that which which they symbolize that it just becomes a thing that we do. While there is no justifying work, there's no saving work in the water, it is powerful and and provide and, and gives you grace in your growth and your relationship to Christ. It's not just saying, I want you to go get wet. 
there's there is there is spiritual grace and power that comes from your baptism. It doesn't justify you, but it is super, super important. And we who just see it as signs and symbols, we can have that that tendency of just letting it become just an event. And we lessen the actual importance of it. Um, Just like our wedding rings. They become so, you know, it's just something I wear. But if you stop wearing your wedding ring, the person that it's supposed to symbolize your relationship with, what are they going to say? Why are you not wearing your wedding ring? To save his finger. <laughs> I'm not getting into that. Um, <laughs> so the point is, is that it is just a ring. It doesn't mean that I'm married, but it's pretty important to the people that it symbolizes there's a union with. Mm-hmm. Baptism is in this. We be, we can become so callous to it because it's like it doesn't do anything. So it's not that you know we're supposed to do it because we're supposed to do it. It's still it still is very 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 important to symbolize your union with Christ, united into His death, His burial, and His resurrection. So we could take away from the actual. There's actual power that comes from it, as long as it's connected to how it's done should be done by the Word's standard. Same with communion. Sorry. Um, I just want us, I want to warn us in that and keep us from becoming so callous to it that it's just something that we do. Uh, okay, so now go, let's go back into Romans 16, 6, starting in 15. And I just want to quickly, I want you to see, and this won't take but a few minutes, I want you to see the now versus the then. The now versus the then. And it's it's really it's fun to, to see it if you sit down and like I wrote it out. This is the one time I wish I had a chalkboard so I could write it out for you. Um, so I've got the then on this side of the page and the now on this side of the page. And basically it's the mirror. It's the opposite. You are something in the past and, and in Christ – you are something else. And so let me just walk us through this. And it's going to be kind of chaotic because it's hard for me to express it. It looks great as I'm looking at it because I can see it. But you kind of have to wade through it when you read it in this section. So bear with me. Um, and then might be a good exercise for you to try sometime as well. And, and this is the main point. This is the main point of this section. You were something... Before Christ, and it's really bad, as we're about to find out. And then after your faith, after believing, after being born again, after being united to Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection, you are totally something opposite. And it leads to something opposite. So if you take one path, it's going to lead, obviously, at the end of that path. And so if you take the bad path, you're going to get to the bad result. If you're on the good path, you're going to get the good result. You'll see what I'm saying as we look through this. Um, Okay, starting in verse 15. 
What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. So basically, Paul wants you to understand that we as Christians who have been saved by grace, we don't have an excuse to now sin because God's forgiven us, but it's quite the opposite. Now that we've been forgiven, now that we have been united with Christ, we are now free to not sin. Free to not sin. Now listen to what he says. Verse 16. Do you not know that if your present... I'm sorry. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Let's, let's read this again. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Okay. Trying to think of a way to present this as an illustration. All right, you've got a mother and a father. Let's just say for the, the sake of the illustration, you've got a mother and a father and a child. And the mother and the father see things differently. They have a different perspective on how their kid ought to do whatever. Um this illustration's always already falling apart. Uh, if you're obedient to one parent over the other, in what Paul is saying, you have put yourself in the position of that person being your master. Again, this is falling apart. If you're going to obey something, you have your okay. Let's just do that. If you're going to obey something, you're submitting yourself for them to be your master. Meaning they own you, right? Who owns you? You have to obey. Um, if you're going to submit and obey the bad master, that's who you have to submit to. They, they have ownership of you. Who you submit to is who you obey, who has ownership of you. I'm really chopping this up here. But look, look, look what he says. Either you have obedience to sin... And where does that lead? It leads to death. Or you have obedience, or you have um, obedience that leads to righteousness. So, verse 17 gets our first really now and then illustration. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So first off, before Christ, you were a slave to sin. And if you're a slave to sin, can you disobey it? No. If you're a slave to something, that, is, that something is your master. 
It owns you. And therefore, you have to obey it. As an unbeliever, you uh, slave uh, sin is your master. Now, this is hard to consider. As an unbeliever, sin is your master and you must obey it. Now, in Christ, as a believer... What are you a slave to? End of 18. A slave of righteousness. A slave of righteousness. So who owns you? Righteousness. So, before Christ, sin owned you. In Christ, righteousness owns you. And you might be thinking, well, I don't want to be owned by anyone. Well, it's not that you have the choice to not be owned by anyone. You are either owned by sin or you're owned by righteousness. Which one is the better choice? Which one is the better path? Righteousness. Now, if, you, if you're on the path of sin, if you're a slave to sin, it leads to death. Back in 17, slaves of the one whom obey you either sin, which leads to death, or a slave to, here it uses the slave of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, keep going. Verse... Let me find this. Present your members as slaves to it. Lawless. Okay, uh, look at verse 19. We have the the then before Christ. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Here's the sentence I want you to see. For just as you once, so the past, you presented your members. What does he mean by that? He means how you how you live. Like when you go and you do something, you use your arms to do it, right? Like if you feed the goats, you gotta use your legs to walk to the feed. You gotta pick up the feed with your arms. These are members of your body, right? So when you're doing that hard work, you're using your members. Well, as a slave to sin, as a slave to sin, you use your members. You present and use your members to impurity, to lawlessness. And what does it lead you to do? More lawlessness. So here's the the reality I want to make sure you understand. For a human being in their own nature, they are stuck in this situation. Because what does lawlessness lead to? More lawlessness. So there's no... That's like saying, I'm going to dig myself out of the hole kind of concept. It can't be done. The more you dig, the more you're in the hole. Huh? The deeper you get. The deeper you get. And so lawlessness, according to Paul, leads to more lawlessness. And it's as if 
You have to obey that lawlessness. Why? Because outside of Christ, you're a slave to sin. And you can't disobey your master. Um, and you know what? what? What we'll do is we'll get... Because we're made in the image of God, we'll have times in our lives where we're like, this isn't right. Even someone outside of Christ will have conviction because they're made in the image of God, because they can see the testimony and witness of, of Christians around them. They'll get within them this feeling, ah, what I'm doing isn't right. And they might try to be better. They might try to do good. But the harsh reality is, is it's just leading them to more lawlessness because that is who they are. Slaves to sin, unto death, presenting their members to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. And look, here's the other thing. Verse 20, this one's so sad and so scary. It's really weird. It's worded weird. For those who are outside of Christ, for those who are slaves to sin, those who are in, uh, in, uh, presenting their members to impurity and lawlessness, for when you were a slave to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Free. Freedom it sounds good, right? But what he's saying is, is that you... Righteousness is not your master. Righteousness doesn't have any authority over you. You are free from that. You are still under the master of sin. You are still a slave to sin. And righteousness is way out of town. And you got nothing to do with it. And you can't have anything to do with it. Um... Now, keep reading 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Is death. The end of that is death. And then the, the beginning of verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. That is the condition of every human being outside of Christ. Every human being that's ever existed. That is their condition outside of Christ. Now, we go back and travel through this and see it. The glorious beauty of being in, being in Christ, being united to Christ. So we're not... Slaves to sin, but we're slaves to obedience, as he said in verses um, 16, which leads to righteousness. And instead of being a slave to sin, we've become obedient. Verse 17, in Christ, we become obedient from the heart. Well, that's nice. I've gone from... Presenting my members as slaves to impurity 
and lawlessness to being obedient from the heart. That can only come from a supernatural regeneration. A supernatural act of God to change you on the inside. Uh, and look what it says at 19. Or excuse me, 18. Having been set free from sin. What does he mean by that? He means in Christ, sin is no longer your master. You have become slaves of righteousness. Now look at the very bottom of 19. Now you can present your members not as not to impurities and lawlessness, but you present your members as slaves to righteousness, not leading to death, but to leading to sanctification. What does that mean, leading to sanctification? Let's just say it like this. Becoming more like Jesus. Becoming more like Jesus. Now, uh, scroll down to 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, hallelujah, slaves, I'm now a slave of God. I am owned by God. He is my master. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, not death, but eternal life. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So, with all that said, you've taken from, before Christ, you have no hope. You will be going from lawlessness to lawlessness and be led unto death as you are continually a slave to your master, sin. But by the grace of God, being born again, being given a new heart, new mind, new affections, new will, new desires, it's not that you are not able to sin. It's that you're not obedient to sin. So here's the, here's the issue that a lot of denominations get wonky and argue about. Are you free from sin and not to sin ever again? Or do you still have to, with your new desires and affections, your new, your new heart and your new mind, work to go away from sin? Right, And I think that's part of the emphasis of Romans 6. Because if you look back up at 12, Paul knows of the new birth. He knows of the new heart. He knows of the uh, raised into a newness of life. But look what he says in verse 12. He knows what Christ has done and that the Spirit has washed and regenerated the soul... 
He still says in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. The work is still to be done in your life. You've been set free from sin as your master. Now don't go back to it. Think about what about uh, Israel and after the Exodus? What about what happened with them? Who was their master? Pharaoh, Egypt, for 400 years. What God do? He set them free from Pharaoh, and so he pulls them out of he pulls them out of Egypt, and he saves them. He redeems them, and they're they're wandering, they're going. They get hungry and they look around. And what do they do? They want to go back to their old master. They want to go back to what they had been redeemed from. This is a tendency that God, that Paul is telling us to stay away from. Don't present your members to your old master. Because what happens? What happens, he said in verse 12... If you let sin reign in your mortal bodies, what are you going to do to it? It says you're going to obey it. You're going to obey. It says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You got to cut it off. You got to be like Lot and not look back. You can't be like Lot's wife. And look back. You cannot go back to him or that which was uh, enslaving you. And that's your sin. You all know your own sin. You all know that which causes you to sin. Some of us, it might be pride at work. Some of us, it might be lust on devices, some of us, it might be disobedience at home. You know your sin, and if you say you have been united to Christ in his death and raised to a newness of life in his resurrection, you cannot, by the grace of God, go back to that which you have been redeemed from. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Here's the good part. I like that he says mortal body because what are we waiting on? That immortal body. And when we get when Christ returns as the end of it as well says, when that trump sounds and he descends, we're we're gonna receive that immortal body. And guess what? There is nothing that is going to make us obey sinful passions ever again. We'll never have to, to have that fight of the battle, the, have the fight of uh, the flesh and the spirit. The spirit will have conquered and saved us completely in that moment. And then we will put on the imperishable. And so we got to keep that in mind. We got to keep that in mind as we, as we fight against our sin, as we look to... To keep it away and out from us. Um, but y'all know what chapter 7's about? It's going to creep up on you. We want, sin's going to creep up on you. And Paul says, 
I can't, I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do. Um, well, that ain't an excuse to sin, but it's the reality of the battle that we fight. Uh, but chapter 8 reads, it begins, even in that battle, if you're in Christ and you stumble, you are free from your guilt and your sin. If you are in Christ. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for Christ and his righteousness. May we know it. God, may we live by it. May it be that which leads us and gives us hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.